0: This is Wahid Jensen and you are listening to A Way Beyond the Rainbow. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh, and welcome back to Away Beyond the Rainbow, this podcast series dedicated to Muslims experiencing same-sex attractions who want to live a life true to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Islam. I'm your host, Rahid Jensen. Thank you so much for joining me in today's episode. In the last episode, we touched upon a model that describes the layers of personality, at the core of which is the authentic self. With wounding and trauma, the authentic self gets buried under layers of fear, anger, and pain, as well as the quote-unquote false selves that we create in order to survive. With healing and recovery work, we begin to peel those layers, one layer at a time, and we allow the pain to be grieved and the wounds to heal, so that the authentic self is given the chance to manifest itself. In this episode, we discuss a major stepping stone on the road to healing and recovery, and that is self-awareness. The more I read books and dived into therapy and counseling, and attended support groups and 12-step meetings and learned about sexual recovery, the more I discovered that self-awareness and mindfulness are absolutely crucial to understand internalize and practice. That's why I've included this topic at the beginning of this entire season, which is dedicated to doing proper healing. We will look at the notion of being stuck, and then what it means to practice conscious self-awareness. We will also discuss some realizations, character traits, and expectations along the journey of healing and recovery. This episode is a synthesis of relevant chapters from Dr. Nicole Lepera's book How to Do the Work, as well as Dr. Gerard Fenden-Ardvec's book The Battle for Normality, A Guide for Self-Therapy for Homosexuality. There's lots of practical work in this episode, with downloadable material in the episode description, so make sure to check these out. And let's get started, inshallah. <music> Many of us want to change, and we recognize the need to change our lives through creating habits, learning new behaviors, letting go of bad habits and ways of thinking, shifting things outside of ourselves, or changing a dynamic with other people that we care about. Many of us want and need to make both internal and external changes. A lot of us, no matter our backgrounds and experiences, we feel stuck in bad habits, damaging behaviors, predictable and problematic patterns, And it makes us feel lonely and isolated and hopeless. Many of us worry about how this feeling of being stuck is perceived by others. And many of us actually obsess about the many ways people in our lives perceive us. There is this constant inability to sustain change, which reflects evidence of deeper intrinsic damage or unworthiness that we may feel about ourselves. Some of us are able to identify our problematic behaviors and even visualize a clear path or plan to change, but few of us are able to take the first step from knowing to doing, right? The ones who can see a way out express a feeling of shame about our falling back into patterns of unwanted behavior. This feeling of knowing better, but still not being able to do better. A lot of us go to therapy, for example, we join support groups, we read self-help books, etc. And all of these transformative experiences and activities that we do can only take us so far along the path of healing. To truly actualize change, we have to engage in the work of making new choices every day. In order to achieve mental wellness, we must begin by being active daily participants in our own healing Now, I'm going to ask you seven questions right now to see if you feel stuck in your life. Try and reflect on them while also exploring the reasons why you may feel stuck in those areas. For instance, you may be able to identify patterns in your thoughts or emotions or behaviors that keep you repeating these unhelpful patterns. It may be helpful to explore these in a journaling exercise. You can refer to these questions using the transcript of this episode. First question. Do you often find yourself unable to keep promises to yourself, attempting to make new choices or create new habits, but always falling back on your old ones? Number two. Do you often find yourself reacting emotionally to events, feeling out of control, and even ashamed about your behaviors after the fact? Number three. Do you often find yourself distracted and or disconnected from yourself and others and or from the present moment itself? Maybe lost in thought about the past or the future or feeling somewhere else, quote-unquote, entirely? Fourth question. Do you often find yourself feeling overwhelmed and torn down by internal critical thoughts, making it difficult to tune into your physical, emotional, and spiritual needs? Number five do you often find yourself struggling to express your wants, needs, beliefs, and or feelings in relationships? Number six, do you often find yourself feeling overwhelmed or unable to cope with stress or any or all of your feelings? And the last question, do you often find yourself repeating past experiences and patterns in your day-to-day life? If you answered yes to one or more of these questions, you are likely feeling stuck as a result of your past experiences and conditioning. It may seem as though change is not possible, but that is not the case, inshallah. The first way to create change is to begin to practice imagining a future that is different from your past and your present realities. Some people argue that we're born with a specific set of genes and we're wired that way for life, and that change is not possible no matter how hard you try. That is not accurate. Yes, we are dealt a specific set of genes, but having a set of genes that makes you at risk for specific diseases or particular behaviors or habits, etc., is not a dead-end or a death sentence. Scientific evidence tells us that genes that we inherit are not fixed. They are influenced by their environment. This starts in utero and continues throughout our lives. This has been the groundbreaking discovery of epigenetics, which tells us a story about our ability to change. We can make choices about our sleep, our nutrition, our relationships, the ways that we move our bodies, what we experience in our daily lives on a daily basis, every moment of every day. And all of this influences our gene expression. This means that we can be active participants in our own well-being. This goes for our physical health and the risk of developing diseases such as diabetes and cancer, as well as our mental and emotional health. The idea that genetics are not destiny involves a profound realization. It gives us tools to reframe our perception of our own bodies. Yes, we may have inherited certain propensities from our families, but that doesn't mean we have to become them. Of course, some environmental factors are beyond our control. We can't choose the circumstances of our childhoods, let alone the circumstances of our families, and so on. But many factors are within our control. We can provide ourselves with a nurturing, we may not have received as kids. We may learn to give ourselves secure bonds and the ability to create a sense of safety. We can change what we eat, how often we exercise, our state of consciousness, and the thoughts and beliefs that we express. We can and should heal our minds and bodies to create wellness for ourselves. This is actually a game changer. When we realize that there is a connection between the mental and the physical health, learning that we actively participate in our mental wellness or the lack of that with every choice, this realization inspires us to learn about our potential for full body healing. This is what Dr. Nicole Perera refers to as quote-unquote holistic psychology, which addresses the mind, the body, and the soul of the person. All of the aspects of what make you, you. And this is precisely the approach we have adopted in this podcast, which aims at understanding and dealing with same-sex attractions from a bio, psycho, social, and spiritual approach. We're not one aspect or one thing. Focusing on one aspect and neglecting others is going to create an imbalance. We are human beings with minds, bodies, hearts, souls, and the need for connection. And this and that is actually the proper Islamic approach, which is a holistic approach that creates a balance across all these dimensions and allows the fitra or the authentic self to be present and at peace. As such, we recognize that healing is a daily event. You can't quote unquote go somewhere to be healed. You must go inward to be healed. This means a daily commitment to doing the work. quote unquote, You are responsible for your healing and will be an active participant in that process. Your level of activity is directly connected to your level of healing. Small and consistent choices are the path to deep transformation. Though many things are beyond our control, of course, others are within our control. We have the power of choice and choice enables healing. Holistic healing tools, which we will cover throughout the season, inshallah, are very practical and approachable. Change can and often still feels overwhelming. This is because the main function of our subconscious mind is to keep us safe, and it is threatened by change. We experience this pull towards the familiar, so to speak, in the different discomforts that we often feel as we change. The practice of making consistent small daily choices through these push-and-pull resistances, this helps empower us to maintain change. Taking responsibility for our mental wellness, though intimidating of course, it can be incredibly empowering. The very first step on our journey of healing is to become aware, to become aware of ourselves, to bring forth what is known as quote-unquote the conscious self. The reality is that a few of us have any real connection to who we really are, yet we want others to see through all of our layers of self-betrayal and into our core selves. Remember the diagram of layers we talked about in the previous episode, the layers of the false self that cover anger, shame, and guilt, and at the core is our core authentic self. We all want to be a better version of ourselves, but our attempts to do that have failed, because we don't understand our own minds and bodies. We don't have the practical tools to understand how to create the changes that we seek to make. We can't expect others to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. When we talk about the path to healing, many of us want to dive right in and work on wounds and traumas, meet our inner child, start the reparenting process, do the ego work, and so on and so forth. It's like seeking a quick fix, but that does not work, because underneath that is a quick attempt to end the discomfort of living with these wounds. But it's important, just like we discussed in the previous episode, before we get to those layers, we have to start peeling one layer at a time. We have to gain the ability to witness our internal world. It's very fundamental to do that. Everything that follows after getting to know your internal world, the conscious self, is grounded in awakening your conscious awareness. Okay, so what do we mean by consciousness here? Consciousness in general refers to the state of being awake. But the state of consciousness in reference to a holistic approach to healing actually means being in a state of awareness. An open awareness that not only allows you to witness yourself and the life around you, but it also empowers choice. In other words, it is only when you are conscious that you are able to see yourself. A process of self-awareness that can suddenly reveal so many of the previously hidden forces constantly at work molding you, Manipulating you and holding you back. You can't eat better, sleep better, stop negative habits, be more present in your relationships and work, or improve yourself in any way until you become transparent to yourself. Because if you intuitively know what you need to do to change for the better, why don't you do it? It's not a moral failure. It's because you're stuck repeating those more or less automatic behavioral patterns. If we're honest with ourselves, we will realize that this is actually the case. Let's take this example. This situation sounds very familiar. We had to work or we go to school more or less the same time every day, right? And the routine to get out the door is more or less memorized. For example, you know, we wake up, pray, shower, brush our teeth, prepare and eat our breakfast, go to work or school, and so on. It's like we're on autopilot, right? Right? We don't have to think consciously about these things. They've been done frequently. Our mind is on autopilot mode. How many times have we actually traveled to work or to school and wondered, oh my god, how did I even get here? Like I wasn't even paying attention, right? When we're running on autopilot, a primitive or subconscious part of our mind drives our reactions. Astonishingly, our subconscious stores every single experience that we ever have. This isn't just a storage house for facts and figures and experiences, it's actually emotional, reactive, and irrational. Every moment of every day, our subconscious mind is shaping the way that we see the world. It is the primary driver of most of our often automatic behaviors. Anytime we are not fully conscious, our subconscious mind is hard at work being us. How we think, how we speak, how we respond, all of this comes from the subconscious part of ourselves that has been conditioned by all of the thoughts, patterns, and beliefs that become ingrained in our childhood through a process called conditioning. When we run on autopilot, it's a function of our conditioning, everything that we've been used to. Most of us are stuck in subconscious programming. Research has shown that we operate only 5% of the day in a conscious state meaning being aware of our surroundings, what we do, how we experience the present moment, etc. So up to 95% of our time we are in the subconscious autopilot mode. Can you believe that? This means that we are making active choices during only a small part of our days and letting our subconscious run the show the rest of the time. The subconscious pull is what makes it hard to change. When we try to push ourselves out of that autopilot and become conscious, there is a resistance from our mind and our body. This sort of resistance is because our subconscious mind loves to keep us in the comfort zone. There is a safety in that comfort zone, because it's familiar, it's predictable. Our minds hate the unfamiliar and the unpredictable. The habits or behaviors that we repeatedly return to become our subconscious default mode. Our brain actually prefers to spend its time in autopilot because it knows what to expect and therefore our habits and routines feel very comforting. So whenever we try to change our lives and disrupt our routines and habits, we feel it's very unsettling, even exhausting to do that. The problem is, following our conditioned routine keeps us stuck in that routine. Every time that we make a choice that is outside of our default programming or our comfort zone, our subconscious mind will attempt to pull us back to the familiar by creating the mental resistance. This can manifest itself as mental or physical discomfort. It can be in the form of cyclical thoughts such as, I can just do this later, or I don't need to do this at all, or physical symptoms like agitation, anxiety, or simply not feeling like yourself. This is your subconscious communicating to you that this is uncomfortable. It's new territory. I don't want that. So the question now is, how do we break that cycle and train ourselves to step out of that conditioning and that subconscious? It is by cultivating the power of conscious awareness, by focusing on bringing back our attention to the present moment before we dive into the usual knee-jerk reactions to which we are used. A lot of people do breath work, meditation, and physical movements such as yoga, which hone the attention muscle that is so key to consciousness. The more you train in those mindfulness practices and whatever helps you in this, the more conscious you become. And what happens is that the brain also changes at the physiological level. When we learn new habits or unlearn old habits and put in the effort, a process known as neuroplasticity takes effect, which is a concept that has been introduced in the last 50 years. Researchers discovered that our brains are structurally and physiologically changeable. We used to think that change at the brain level does not happen, that, you know, by our 20s we're stuck with whatever neural pathways we have. That is simply not true. Brains are subjected to change our entire lives. The brain is able to reorganize itself and grow connections between the nerve cells, or the neurons. Research has shown that practices like yoga, meditation, and other mindful practices help us to focus our attention on the present moment, and they are especially powerful in restructuring our brain. We can extrapolate this in our daily prayers as Muslims if we are mindful in our salah. Experiencing every word we utter and every action we perform, being in the present moment and living the prayer as a vivid experience, we can cultivate conscious awareness multiple times per day, actually. It takes practice and commitment to be able to do that. Khushua, as we know, has many layers and many stations. So when new neural pathways are formed, we are able to break free of our default patterns and live more actively in a conscious state. From this foundation of consciousness, we can then begin to witness the conditioned patterns in our thoughts, beliefs, and relationships. This honest self-awareness shows us our pathway towards change and ultimately healing. So, knowing all of this, you might ask, how can you practice being more in the conscious rather than the subconscious state? It takes daily practice. Let's try a few exercises that will help you access this consciousness. It will be helpful to use these prompts for a few minutes every day, because in order to allow change to happen, you will need to create a routine that you stick to, a small daily promise to yourself that you can practice keeping to yourself during your healing journey you'll notice that as you begin this practice, there may be a lot of discomfort. Again, this is because the mind is screaming, hey, wait, this is uncomfortable, we want to operate on our familiar programming. This may manifest as some form of agitation. It may be helpful to try to practice breathing through this, and try not to judge your experience. If this becomes too intense, then give yourself a break, acknowledge to yourself that this is your limit, and it's okay. Rest, of course, and know that you can return to the practice the next day. This may feel awkward and silly at first. Stick with it. This consciousness-building exercise sets the foundation for the work that follows. So, my advice is, start with one or two minutes a day where you can practice being focused on and truly present in whatever you're doing. This could be while you're doing dishes, for example, or folding laundry, or taking a bath, whatever you're doing. It could mean stopping on your walk and looking up at the clouds, or taking a moment to really smell the aromas of your workspace throughout the day. Make a conscious choice to witness the entirety of your experience in that moment, and say to yourself, I am in the present moment. Your mind may respond with a steady stream of mental resistance, because it's being taken out of its conditioning and is being watched and observed. All sorts of thoughts may come up in your mind, and this is okay. Just practice witnessing them. Ground yourself in the moment. Our senses allow us to leave our chaotic mind and find a deeper connection to the present moment. Use your five senses of sight, smell, taste, hearing, and touch. For example, let's say you've chosen to do this exercise while doing the dishes. Use the five senses in that moment. Feel the soap on your hands. See how the soap bubbles cover your hands. Feel the slickness of the dishes in the skin. Smell the scent of the air. This will enable you to stay in the moment without your mind commanding you out of it. And doing this will become more and more comfortable. With practice. After practicing this for one to two minutes, acknowledge that you gave yourself this time. This will allow your mind and body to understand how it feels and give you a moment to thank yourself for the time that you took to do the work. Then repeat this exercise at least once a day. As you get more comfortable, you'll begin to notice more moments when you can repeat the exercise or the practice. Those of us who practice meditation are familiar with this. There are lots of meditation playlists out there that can help you with this. One app that I personally recommend is called Insight Timer, which has lots of amazing guided meditations and courses and playlists for a variety of themes and purposes. I will add a link to the app so you can download it if you like. Many meditation exercises work on cultivating this conscious awareness by focusing on the five senses and being in the present moment and allowing the mind to come to a calm place without judgment or tension. Many of us on the journey of healing and recovery have found these exercises to be foundational, and I encourage you to try them out. Baby steps, 5-10 to minutes per day, is all you need. Even less at the beginning, that's fine. And then you may find yourself enjoying the work and reaping the benefits, inshallah, such that it becomes part of your daily life if you're up for it. Another exercise that I would recommend is something called the Future Self-Journal that Dr. Nicole Pere has set up, which I'm going to add to the episode description as well as a PDF file that you can download. The Future Self-Journal is a daily practice aimed at helping you break out of your quote-unquote subconscious autopilot, meaning the daily conditioned habits that are keeping you stuck repeating your past. You can begin to move forward by consistently engaging in activities which allow you to witness the ways that you remain stuck in your past conditioning, and set a conscious daily intention to change. You set small and actionable steps that support daily choices, that are aligned with a different future outcome, and you empower these daily choices despite the universal experience and presence of mental resistance. I know this is too much to take all at once, but Nicole explains it beautifully and breaks it down step-by-step in the document, so make sure you download it and go through it when you get the chance. I promise it is worth it, inshallah. Now, the goal from here is to practice making this new choice throughout each day. To help me remember my consciously set intention, for example, I set reminders for myself on my phone for random times throughout the day. Each time my reminder goes off, I check in with myself, noticing where my attention is, and then I discover very quickly that it is not in the current moment. Usually if I am not reliving the past, I am worrying about future issues that could cause me stress. This practice has helped me become more in tune with the present moment. Now, in addition to creating conscious awareness as part of being more aware of yourself, another layer of awareness involves self-knowledge and understanding, which involves getting to know your character or personality, meaning your motivations and attitudes and habits. It is the knowledge of ourselves others would have if they knew us well. It is much more than knowledge of our subjective emotional experiences. To understand ourselves better, we have to know our psychological history and have a reasonably clear picture of how our character and psychological dynamics came about. A powerful tool to help you gain a deeper understanding of this has been developed by Dr. Gerard van den Artvek. You, you may remember Van den Artvek back in season one when we spoke about the genesis of SSA. He developed what he calls an, an amnestic questionnaire, which he included in his book The Battle for Normality: A Guide for Self-Therapy for Homosexuality. The intention of this questionnaire is to bring about self-insight into one's psychological history and the present self, as well as our present habits and emotions and motives that are related to our homosexual tendencies. The questions address our relationship with our parents during childhood, adolescence, and the present time, you know, also our relationship with our siblings, friends, as well as the play and interests that we had during childhood and adolescence, as well as our mood and perception of our physical appearance during childhood and adolescence. And then the last part of the questionnaire addresses our psychosexual history, as far as it related to our homosexual tendencies, like our infatuations and fantasies and sexual practices. Again, I have included a link to the questionnaire in the episode description, so make sure to check that out when you get the chance. The best method to use the questionnaire is to write down your answers in order to make your ideas on yourself as clear and concrete as possible. Look at your answers again after a few days and correct what you think needs to be amended. We often figure out particular patterns and notions better after having let those questions sink into our minds for a while. Process this with someone who is working with you in your journey of healing, growth, and recovery, be that a therapist or counselor, or a mentor, or a sponsor, or a close friend. This part of self insight is essential as we get to learn about our present self, you know, our present habits and emotions, and most important of all, our motives that are related to our particular tendencies. It is important that we try to see ourselves in an objective light, as another person who knows us well would actually see us. Observations by people close to us are important, especially when they come from people who share our normal daily activities. They may open our eyes to habits or attitudes of which we may not be aware, or to which we would never admit, right? This would be the first method of acquiring the self-insight. Collect and carefully consider remarks made by others and see how they genuinely apply to you. Of course, here we're not talking about hurtful comments or attacks, but rather points of observation or even constructive criticism, for example. Another method is called self-observation. This primarily focuses on the inner events, meaning the emotions and thoughts and fantasies and motives or desires, and secondarily on the outward behavior. With regards to outward behavior, we can try to represent how we behaved, as if we were looking at ourselves from another person's lens, objectively, from a certain distance. Of course, inner self-perception and representation of our behavior, through the eyes of an onlooker, are interconnected processes. So, how do we do that? Here again, Fenton Artvek developed another questionnaire that is related to self observation at the level of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, as well as at the level of morals. This questionnaire dives deep into our unpleasant thoughts and feelings, our social and verbal behaviors, our attitudes towards ourselves, our parents, our partners. You know, sexuality, fulfillment of gender roles, as well as daily work are addressed as well. As far as self-observation at the level of morals, we observe ourselves from a psychological-moral viewpoint and recognize the behavioral patterns that are moral or immoral according to our value system. A link to this questionnaire has also been added to the episode description, so make sure to check it out as well. For these self-observation and reflection exercises, it is recommended that you devote around one or two weeks and take notes of these observations regularly though not necessarily every day, only if there is something of importance to note. It depends on you. Use a special notebook for that purpose and make a habit of jotting down your observations, as well as questions or critical reflections. Writing increases the sharpness of observations and insights. Moreover, it enables you to study them sometime later, which many people experience as even more revealing than noting them at the moment of their occurrence or soon afterward. Now, the question is, what can we expect along this journey of healing and recovery? Growing self-insight is the first step in any change. As we embark on this journey of self-discovery and seeking support and learning and growing and healing, self-insight continues to grow, along with personal improvement. Hope starts to emerge, which can can make problems much easier to handle, and it provides us with a healthy outlook on life. Of course, since many of the previous foundations and old habits are still there, there will still be ups and downs or quote-unquote relapses and so on, and that is okay, Hope must be cherished throughout the process of growth and healing. Hope is based on realism. No matter how thoughts, feelings, and habits may present themselves, no matter how often we may give in to them, as long as there is a constant effort to improve, we will see positive achievements, inshallah. Moods of despair are part of the game, at least in many cases, but we must try our best to curtail them, to try and keep calm, and to go on. Vanden Aardvig says this so beautifully, and I'm quoting here, Realistic hope is quiet optimism, not agitated euphoria. The next step that comes after self-insight is indispensable, and that is self-discipline. For the most part, this concerns things that we consider trivial, like waking up on time, keeping regular habits, and taking care of our body, our meals, our clothing, our hair, etc. And putting a reasonable order into the small affairs of everyday life and work, not delaying work or business that deserves priority, planning our day, including our studies or work, even our amusement and social life, and so on. If there are points of shaky or absent self-discipline, note them and begin working on them. Many of us have difficulty with some form of self-discipline. To disregard these problems, hoping for a quote-unquote emotional cure, that will solve everything else? This is unrealistic. No therapy, support, or counseling can succeed if this dimension of daily self-discipline is neglected. But then again, we don't do everything all at once. We start with baby steps. Invent simple methods for your characteristic weak spots. Start with one or two areas where you find your self-discipline is not that great. Once these areas improve, the rest will follow more easily. Sincerity here is very important, sincerity to ourself in the first place. This means training ourselves to pay attention to what is going on in our mind, to check in with our motives and real intentions, including the instigations of our nefs, ourself. Sincerity means not arguing away or ignoring our perceptions or intuitions when it comes to what we see as our better self, but rather trying to put these thoughts and perceptions in straightforward and simple words so as to become maximally aware of them. Make a habit of writing down important thoughts and self-perceptions about who you are and who you want to be, meaning the what is and the what could be. Sincerity also means taking courage to communicate our weaknesses and failures to another person who is there to help. That person could be a therapist, a coach, a mentor or trustworthy friend who has earned the right and privilege to hear our story. We all have the tendency to hide certain aspects of our intentions and feelings, both from ourselves and from others. Yet it is not only liberating to overcome this matter, but it is also indispensable for our growth and progress. Again, it's not like airing our dirty laundry and advertising each and everything to each and every person, but rather opening up about specific matters to a few people who are there to help us on our journeys. Also, to the requirement of sincerity, we would also add sincerity towards God in our prayers and dua with our niyas, as well as the things that we say and do on a daily basis. We will talk more about self-discipline towards the end of the season with lots of practical steps, inshallah. But for now, the idea is to pick one or two areas in life and focus on them. Baby steps slowly but surely. Once you master them and become disciplined in them, you'll notice that it will start seeping into other areas of your life, inshallah. Now, the more that we grow in self-insight, we begin to see aspects of ourselves that may seem quite childish in behavior. We will talk more about inner child work this season as well, inshallah. But a few points are worth mentioning here when it comes to an aspect of ourselves that indulges in self-pity and complaining like a child. Many of us may begin to recognize momentary or more chronic manifestations of what is known as the quote-unquote inner complaining child. In other words feelings, words, or behaviors that we display that are all about complaining and engaging in self-pity. Fanden Ardvek has a lot to say about this, actually. His recommendation is to imagine this, quote-unquote, poor me, child or teenager, standing before you in the flesh, or imagine that your adult ego has been replaced by the, quote-unquote, child ego, so only your adult body is present, but there is a child in you. Then mentally represent this child as acting or reacting or just thinking and feeling in the concrete situation in which you find yourself. It can be easy to recognize the inner and the outward behavior as a child if you can say, for instance, I felt completely like a little boy who was rejected or criticized or not valued, or who felt lonely or humiliated or fearful in front of an authority figure or angry or rebellious and so on. It can also be easy for someone else who observed the person's behavior to tell him or her You kind of behaved like a child there, what was going on. Of course, acknowledgement of this is not easy. You may resist seeing yourself as merely a child. My feelings are more serious and worthwhile than that, you might say to yourself. Or perhaps I was somewhat childish, but I actually had good reasons for feeling agitated and hurt. While that may be true, there are elements of pride that come in the picture. So sincerity and humility are very helpful companions in this case. Another challenging element is that emotions and inner reactions can often be confusing. We may not clearly differentiate between what we're really thinking or feeling or willing, and it may also be unclear what element of the situation or others' behavior provoked the inner reaction. In this case, reflection, analysis, and reasoning will help make a note of your reactions use the self observations questionnaire and discuss your points with your therapist or coach or support person their observations or critical questions may be of value if this doesn't solve the problem either you, you know it's best to drop this incident for the time being in the course of self analysis and self reflection the more aware we become of our inner child's typical patterns of reaction the less frequent the confusing inner child situations will become However, in many cases, you will realize that just recognizing this quote-unquote poor child is enough to create an inner distance to your childish feelings and self-pity. The unpleasant feeling doesn't have to disappear completely for the situation to get more manageable anyway. In particular instances, as Fenden Ardvik recommends, it is appropriate to see the irony of the poor me, you know? For instance, by saying to your inner child something like, oh, how sad, how pitiful... Or, poor you. (laughs) If it works with you, this method sheds light on the pity with a little bit of humor, and you can modify this according to your own individual taste and sense of humor. Make little jokes at your childish self, or laugh at this with other people you trust. This helps to dissipate a lot of the self-pity and complaining that goes on that actually stems from that childish part of us. Now, With stronger and more obsessive complaints, especially those that are associated with rejection, such as hurt, childish pride feelings of worthlessness, ugliness, and inferiority, or physical complaints such as being tired, or distress over injustice that you have suffered, or any adverse circumstances, and so on, Van den Ardvek recommends applying the method that is called hyperdramatization, which was devised by another psychiatrist by the name of Arndt. Hyperdramatization consists of exaggerating the tragic or dramatic aspects of the childish complaint until it becomes ridiculous, until we react by actually smiling or even laughing at it. And this method was actually used intuitively by the famous 17th century French playwright Moliere when he suffered from bouts of obsessive hypochondria. In response to his own obsession, he produced a comedy with a hero who so exaggeratedly dramatized his sufferings and his quote-unquote imagined illnesses that it made the public, and himself as well, laugh out loud. Laughing is a very good remedy against our irrational and drastic emotions, but it takes courage and some practice before we can say ridiculous things about ourselves and to our child ego and to make ridiculous representations of ourself, or purposely make faces at ourself in the mirror and imitate ourselves or our behavior and our voice in a comical way, and to make fun of ourselves and our hurt feelings. The, the ego takes itself very seriously, and it takes its complaints very tragically. Now, mind you, the point of hyperdramatization is not self-deprecation or making fun of yourself for no reason, or demeaning yourself or adding more fuel to the fire. No, It's rather an attempt to distance yourself from the childish ego and to laugh at the absurd thinking and behavior that stems from that childish ego, to the point that you get over it and move on. In other words, not taking yourself too seriously, particularly when the impulses are ridiculous to begin with, right? Of course, hyperdramatization is part of self-humor and you may think of other forms of self-humor that you can use. In general, humor serves to reveal how relative it is when we feel important or tragic. It also helps us counteract complaining and self-pity, so that we can better accept what is inevitable and deal with our issues without complaining, regardless of how big or small they may be, just the way they are. Humor also helps us become more realistic and see the true proportions of ourselves and others. That is, to to come out of our excessively subjective or imagined perception of the world and of others. Again, the bottom line is, don't take yourself too seriously. So how do we do this? For example, I imagine the child me standing in front of me, and this child is engaging in self-pity because of unfriendly treatment or some kind of rejection. I might say something like, Oh, poor you, they've treated you so harshly, eh? They beat you up and tore your clothes, haven't they? You know, just a form of exaggeration. If there is hurt, childish pride, one might say something like, Oh, you poor thing, that golden statue of yours has been taken down. A funny example is given by Fanden Ardvik himself with regards to self-pity over loneliness, which is a highly frequent complaint among many of the quote-unquote homosexual clients that he worked with, and it goes something like, "'Oh, such agony. Your shirt is wet. Even the windows are steamed by your tears, and the sheets of your bed are dripping, saturated with your tears. A pond of tears is forming on the floor. Fish with an intensely sad look are swimming, aimlessly circles in it,' and so on." Again, these might actually seem absurd, and that's the point. (laughs) They're not intended to hurt or make fun of one's pain, but rather to get out of that absurdity of self-pity and over-fixation on ourselves, and be real for a change. Use whatever may seem humorous to you, and invent your own brand of self-irony. Some people might hear this and object that these are silly or childish things, which they are but a lot of these objections themselves come from an inner resistance to laughing at ourselves. The advice is to start with small, innocent jokes about frustrations that are not particularly serious. Humor can work well. And although this is childish humor, we must not lose sight of the fact that it is also childish emotionality that is being targeted with this trick. The use of self-irony and self-humor presupposes, to some degree, insight into the childish character of these reactions. So the first step is recognizing the childish attitudes and the self-pity and then admitting it to ourselves. It is worth noting here that self-humor can actually be seen in humble and psychologically healthy people, and that's great. Mind you, again, we're not saying that people should be positive all the time, or avoid expressing their frustrations, and just laugh at their problems all the time. That's not what is intended here. There is nothing wrong with expressing sorrow and everyday frustrations to friends or family members if it is done maturely, with a proper perspective and intention, and trying to deal with the matters as adults. Normal negative emotions and thoughts do not have to be denied or suppressed by exaggerated quote-unquote positive thinking or ignoring them. That's actually to- you know, toxic positivity. That's not healthy anyway. The problem we're referring to here is, again, the childish self-pity alone, that poor me part of us. We can actually tell the difference between normal expressions of grief and disappointment and childish whining and harping and lamenting. The most important thing is to work at this steadily, one day at a time. It is also important to realize that we can complain mentally or verbally. A good exercise is to note our words during a conversation with friends or colleagues and mentally register every time the urge to complain comes up. Try not to satisfy this urge. Change the subject or say something like, it is difficult or it is mean or unjust or whatever, but it's okay we must see how we can make the best of it, right? When we conduct the simple experiment now and then, it can really reveal how strong the tendency to complain about our fate and frustrations really is, and how frequently and easily we give into it. It is also a good practice to try to withstand that urge to co-complain when others are complaining and expressing their indignation or discontentment. We just slide into that conversation. Try and avoid that as well. And this takes time and practice, but it is all worth it, inshallah. Finally, as we work steadily on self observations and grow in our self insights, we begin to cultivate the virtue of patience. We become patient with our failures and with the gradual progress we are making. We've spoken a lot about patience and patient forbearance back in Season 2, involving patience with trials and tribulations, patience as we cultivate self-discipline and work on our attachments, patience with surrender, patience with uncertainty, vulnerability, and moments of weakness, patience in overcoming our own desires, lusts, and whisperings, as well as patience in keeping steadfast with our religious obligations and life's priorities. Impatience is something that is characteristic of children, as we know. A child does not easily accept his or her weaknesses, and when he or she wants to change something, he or she feels it must happen overnight, and if it doesn't, there goes a tantrum. We've all experienced this feeling of discomfort and agitation, right? On the other hand, healthy self-acceptance, which is quite different from the indulgence of our weaknesses, it means doing our very best given our circumstances while having tawakkul on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and calmly accepting ourselves as limited creatures in relation to Allah's limitless potential. In other words, self-acceptance entails humility. Humility is central to a mature personality. It is an objective reality that each person has his or her frailties and considerable imperfections, be they psychological or moral. When we exercise humility, we are challenging the ego, as well as the inner child who seeks attention and behaves impatiently and claims importance, meaning, you know, being the center of the universe, me, myself, and I. It's all about me, 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 me right? Children are by nature ego-centered, and thus they feel important, you know, like they're the center of the world. Therefore, they are inclined to what is known as infantile pride, infantile because they're children, so this childish pride. Remember back in episode 8, when we talked about the concept of the inferiority complex, according to Fenton Ardvik, where a person feels inferior to his peers, and not on the same level, not good enough. In a sense, in any inferiority complex lies an element of hurt pride, and the inner child cannot accept his or her perceived inferiority. What happens after that is overcompensation as a result, meaning, actually, I am special and better than the rest, I don't need them, right? And this fuels further the cycle of excessive self-affirmation and role-playing and the tendency to be the center of attention and sympathy. Deeply hurt self-esteem is affiliated with delusions of grandeur. So we shift from one extreme to another. And you may remember when we spoke about narcissism back in episode 9. Many men and women experiencing SSA demonstrate this overcompensatory arrogance. From feelings of inferiority and childhood complex of not belonging, many of us developed feelings of superiority along the lines of I am not one of you. I am actually better than you. I am special. I have a superior nature. I am specially gifted. I'm specially sensitive. I am specially tragic. Again, notice the focus on the self. I am me. The attention is given to me as the center of the universe. So, in combination with the feelings of inferiority, arrogance makes us vulnerable to criticism and we feel easily insulted. Many out and proud, quote-unquote, men and women who have decided that their desires and behaviors and lifestyles are quote-unquote natural, those people often equate their being different with being superior to others. Pride sums up the lifestyle in many cases. Just look at the word and imagine the ripple effects of the term. And what's the opposite of pride? Humility and submission. When one is in a position of pride, it becomes difficult to see the normality of things, the weakness that we have as humans, our need for submission to the Creator, subhanahu ta'ala, our need to be vulnerable, and so on. Learning humility is liberating. We learn that by discovering our thoughts, expressions, and impulses of vanity that we have. Any signs of arrogance— any signs of superiority and boasting, as well as moments of hurt pride and unacceptance of well-intentioned criticism by others. Once we recognize these matters in us, we can refute such thoughts we have, we can make fun of them and diffuse the whole situation, or otherwise simply reject these thoughts and impulses and submit to being humble. In the process, we build a new self-image, an image of the real self that has capabilities, but its capabilities are limited in nature, and that, at the end, we are modest human beings, not superior to anyone or anything else. In the eyes of God, what makes us better? Having taqwa, which means God-consciousness and piety. And with this, we have come to the end of today's episode. I hope that you have enjoyed it and learned from it, inshallah. I know it was a lot to take in. So again, baby steps, take a break, do it slowly, whatever works for you, inshallah. In the next episode, my friend Adam is joining me again in a series on understanding and healing from complex trauma, inshallah. Those upcoming episodes are incredibly important for our healing journeys. I hope you guys find them eye-opening and beneficial. Until then, stay safe and healthy. This has been Wahid Jensen in A Way Beyond the Rainbow. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh.